Well, um, today we're going to talk out of the second chapter of Acts. And if you give any preacher, pastor, or teacher an opportunity for an open Sunday, it's, uh, it's somewhat likely that Acts 2 will sometimes show up. I don't know what the percentage is, but there is a high percentage. And that's partly because... Our movement, a brotherhood and sisterhood of churches, uh, we think of ourselves as reformationists and some of, uh, some of the Christian groups that sparked and developed at the same time that the Church of God Anderson did, uh, they call themselves restorationist churches. And whether they're reformist-minded or restoration-minded, those churches always say, we want to do things like the early church did it. We want to go back to the beginning and examine the pattern of the early church, and we want to do as best as we can what they did. That through the years, traditions creep in and different ways of doing things, and they're not necessarily bad, but one cultural idea of how to do church doesn't always make sense a couple generations later. And I don't need to tell this room. Some of you grew up in churches that uh, there were elements, right, that you loved about those churches. And then there were some elements that you thought, this is weird, right? Even though, now I know that feels a little sacrilegious to say, but there's a reason you don't attend a church that was exactly like the one you grew up in. Because there were some parts to those churches that they meant well and they were doing the best they could, I think, but... But they just seemed a little unsettling. But if a church never examines itself and says, now why are we doing that? Then they just keep doing it. I'll illustrate. Um, years ago, I was in Bible college in downtown Chicago, and I attended a very highbrow church. The minister wore robes, and the people, there were a lot of candles in the room and incense, and, and there, was, uh, there, were, uh, there were young men holding little candles, and there, were, there was a lot of pomp and circumstance to the ceremony. And I didn't grow up with that. Some of you grew up with the church like that. I, I honestly thought, this is really beautiful. It's kind of otherworldly. It's, it's kind of neat to see. I also thought, I'm glad I don't do this every week because it sure takes them an awful long time to get anything done around here. They just go through a lot of stuff. And, and so in particular, they had a reading of the scriptures. And in the ceremony of the reading of the scriptures, the, they did a bunch of prayer. And then the minister goes into like this um, special sacred place that was locked off from the rest of the congregation in the front, goes behind like a, like a very beautiful wrought iron fence and goes into this um, big uh, tabernacle looking type of thing. And I hadn't noticed it when I first got there, but there was a door and he took a special key out of a special pouch and he unlocked the door and he opened the door and he took out uh, something special wrapped in like a, a very ornate velvet bag to which he then brought out of the tabernacle and out of the wrought iron fence and now he's on kind of the front altar piece like this and says some prayers and there's some candles and some incense and then he removes what turns out to be a bible from the big velvet bag now i thought you know that is really that's really actually special because the book is sacred and uh, i thought how many times back then when i 
you know, didn't have a Bible on any electronic device because I didn't own an electronic device because they hadn't been invented yet. But back then we had one of these good old fashioned Bibles, right? And I thought, how many times I perched that in the back window of my car? You know, I'm not sure that that was sacred. I don't know that I was honoring the book that way, but they were honoring the book. And so they take it out of the velvet pouch and one guy has gloves on and he's holding it and he carries it backwards into the middle of the sanctuary and there's candles like two and two. There's four candle people. There's an incense person and there's a separate person who never touches the book. But as the other person opens the book, that particular person who's not touching the book then chant, reads, sings the book. And it was like out of the Gospel of John or something like that. And I thought, man, this is beautiful. Now, I was with another friend of mine from the same Bible college, and he had his Bible with him, and he whispers to me, should I just lend him mine? It'll be quicker. <laughs> so I, I love history. I love church history. I love to ask questions. Why do they do that? Where's that from? And so I did a little research on why they did that and where that's from. And the best I could put together is it goes back centuries when a town might have one Bible for the entire city, for the entire town. And the, that there was no printing press then. They were handwritten copies on vellum. And so because they were handwritten copies on vellum, it was a very, very special book. Not everyone could touch it with their grimy, greasy fingers. You'd wreck it. And so you'd go through a whole process and, and you'd wear gloves and, and you wanted the congregation to understand how sacred this was. But the reason you kept it locked behind a, a wrought iron fence in a little tabernacle was because if, if, if this thing, there was only one of them in town, this was worth more than gold. So some unconscionable thief could break in and steal the Bible. Now, I don't know where you sell or fence a hot Bible. I don't know. But there's probably there was somebody out there who would do it, right? They'd be like, hey, I'm not asking questions. I got a discount Bible. So they had to keep the thing secure. And so what made sense in that era, let's keep the thing secure, years later, had just turned into a ceremony. And in downtown Chicago, when, because of the printing press, and this is now the most printed book in the entire world, there's a lot of Bibles out there. I mean, the Gideons give them away for free to anyone who wants. So there, there's a lot of, so the need to protect it, to preserve it, all the velveteen bag and all that, not necessary. But nobody had stopped and go, now why are we doing that? You know, this is eating up like eight minutes of the church service. Maybe someone could sing a nice solo that would bless the soul rather than watch them go through the whole bag and tabernacle ritual. Now, I'm not knocking the ritual. But if the Bible said, thou shalt conduct this ritual or thou art sinning, then you better do it that way. But since the Bible doesn't tell us to do it that way, it's totally optional. And people will optionally choose ways to do this thing called church based not on what the Bible says, but based upon how they grew up, what they're used to. And we all have that natural feeling of what church is supposed to be, how we're supposed to approach church. And it's not wrong, but it becomes wrong probably when we turn it into a commandment and then judge other people because they're not doing it the way we're doing it. So this is why it's good to go back to the original days, the early days, and examine how they do church. Before we go there, though, just a question, open question for us to respond to. What is the church? What is it? The 
Body of Christ, the people. Any other? When you hear the word church, what comes to mind? We won't judge your answer, we promise. At least not out loud. Internally we might, but... What am I supposed to be doing today? Katie, what was that? I'm sorry. Oh, you didn't mean to say it out loud? What am I supposed to be doing today? What am I supposed to be doing today? Something else was last week I had to do. Right. There we go. That's what I think about. That's what you're thinking. What, what else? I, I think the church are, are the people that believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The people who believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Fellowship. The fellowship. We are a family. A family, yeah. I would come no matter who was teaching for the family engagement. That's nice, Brad. I appreciate that. That's Brad's way of saying he's disappointed I'm speaking today. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Brad said I'd come no matter who's speaking. I'm just giving you, I only joke Brad because I know Brad. <laughs> Ellie did thumb up that, though. Ellie was like, that's true. Any other thoughts? The Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ. These are, you're a very sophisticated audience. These are all very, very good answers. You know, if we go back to the, any of you, any of you bilingual speak uh, Spanish? Anybody? Anyone know the Spanish word for church? Iglesia. And that Spanish word, like a lot of Spanish words, it roots back to Latin. The Romantic languages, French and Spanish and Italian, many Latin words migrated over. And, and the Iglesia word is from a, a Greek word, which it... Good, I got a new pen. Is, uh, is from a Greek word, which is uh, in Greek, it looks like this. I know, I'm just showing off here. But it's, uh, it just is this. Ecclesia. There you go. So, ecclesia. And, and this word is, is a combination word. This means out of, and this is kaleo, the called ones. In fact, there's a campus ministry at one of the universities called kaleo. And it just means the called ones. So to be... Ecclesia is to be the called ones that are called out of something. And actually, this word wasn't a religious word. In the old Greek language, that word was, was, was truly was just a, uh, a word that, that meant a gathering of people. Our Tuesday night young adults ministry that meets in the, uh, H, or the, the venue here, and there's hundreds of them that come from all over the city. It's quite a sight to behold. I sit in the sound booth so they're not creeped out by a 50-year-old guy hanging out with a bunch of 20-somethings. But, but uh, it's, it's a very exciting. Pastor Andy preaches usually, and there's a great worship experience for these. If you have any young people in your lives, grandkids or otherwise, 20-somethings, send them to the gathering. They call it the gathering. And the gathering is... The ecclesia, that's actually what the word is. is it's, it's the gathering. It's the, it's the called out ones. In other words, it's a group of people that are distinct from the masses. That's what it is. That's what it means. Very simple definition. We come to think all kinds of other thoughts about it. So let's go to the beginning of the church and examine what they did. And if you have a place found in your Bible or your electronic device where an axe chapter 2, starting in verse 42. So, just context here. Acts chapter 2, 
Peter went from timid soul who abandoned Christ to Holy Spirit filled, empowered by Christ. And so he preaches an incredible sermon and people come to Christ. He's up in the Temple Mount and there's a massive response. But once somebody's saved, like the, the Franklin Graham thing coming through here, once people are saved, and there's a little notch here, that's, that's not the end of the journey. Just to come to Christ is just one important chapter in a multi-chapter book. So what do they do? It says, um, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship and a breaking of bread and a prayer. This is those people that were just at the temple mount area. It says Every, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possession to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So why was it important after their, we'll call it conversion, why was it important for them to have this experience? Why is, maybe a better question for us is, why is it important for a person who comes to faith in Christ for them to even be part of what we call church? It's a reinforcement from other believers, the surety that you have in yourself about your, your belief in God. That is something, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm encouraged, reinforced, the comment was to be in re reinforced in your faith by other believers. I, I am so reinforced, I'm so encouraged when I hear other believers, particularly when they're facing a trial, a difficulty, and by faith they persevere, they pull through. And even if it doesn't go the way they want it to go, I'm so encouraged when they go, here's a tough thing that happened, and here's how God has shown himself faithful in it. Does that, does that ring true for you guys too? I mean, does that resonate with you as well? Yeah, and the scripture also say, fail not to assemble yourself. Well, that is very true. Uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know it's scripture. And the writer of Hebrews says, uh, don't forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. It isn't COVID, my friends, that keeps some people from gathering together. COVID is just the 2021 issue. But in AD 34, there were their issues. I'd go to church, but there's a Roman soldier posted over yonder. I'd, I'd be part of church, but man, I'm telling you what, the fishing business ain't what it used to. I got to work seven days a week. Uh, I, I'd, I'd go to church, but the kid's sick again, or at least he looks sick. <laughs> Or we'll get sick, so I probably shouldn't. In fact, if I go to church, the kid will get whatever the other kids at church got. So I probably shouldn't go to church. I don't have a clean robe. I don't know. I, if I go to church, I wore this last time I was in church. If people see that I'm wearing the same sweater again, they're going to think I don't have what it takes. So I'd better not go for a while till they forget what I wore the last time I went to church. You know, fill in the blanks, you yeah? know. 
There is a, I grew up on gospel music because my parents hated me. And no, I'm totally kidding. I loved it. it. That is totally a joke. I grew up, I, any of you, any of you grew up on the Kingsman? Do you know who that group is? A few of you poor souls out there. They were from Asheville, North Carolina, I think. And every time they buzzed through Lansing, Michigan, my hometown, we had to go see them. And they were a hoot. They really were. They sang very well. And they had a song called Excuses. And it was like all the excuses people give for not going to church. The minister's sermons are too short or not deep enough. They're too long and they're so deep I can't understand. The, the air conditioning is so cold I freeze in the summer and it's so hot in the winter I melt in the wintertime. And I mean, it was hilarious. It was, I mean, if you weren't laughing by the end of the song, you, there was something wrong with you. You didn't even have to go to church to laugh at the song. But we present, what are some of, just out of curiosity, what are some of the reasons people give for not going to church? I'm not asking for us to judge anybody. I, these might be excuses we have given. So it's too early. Yeah. It's too late. It's too, <laughs> it is too late. <laughs> what other excuses? Oh, it's rainy. That's right. I might get wet. Oh, there's a good tennis match on. That is a bougie answer right there. I got a tennis match to watch. That is good. I like it. I like it. There's one child in the family that's got a cold. Oh, yeah. All seven stay at home. You know that song. You know that song. That's a lyric in that song, Katie. Aaron. I don't, I don't want to run into somebody because they might gossip about what I might have to say. Oh yeah, yeah. I might I might run into someone and then they 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 take an opportunity to cut me down later, which I won't even hear, incidentally. But it, it's a potential that's scary. Yeah. Grandkids might be coming over. Oh yeah, grand yeah grandkids. You know how they always show up on Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know it. My 16-year-old boy'd be in bed till one if I didn't wake him up. He not going anywhere in the morning without being shoved out of that bed. What else? Don't get out of church early enough to beat the Baptists. To, to... That is true, and there are a lot of them. So you gotta, you gotta get out of church early. I can always tell who's trying to get to lunch early because I'll be in the lobby and uh, and uh, you'll see people leaving like in the closing minutes. And I'm like, that's someone really wanting to get out of this parking lot. So again, I don't judge because uh, before I was a pastor, I did the same thing. Um, <laughs> I saw a hand back here. What's that? Just too tired. Oh, too tired. Yeah. You know, though, I will say this. There is nothing like sleeping in church. I mean, it's, it's sacred. If, if there, there's, we have comfortable seating. I remember when I was newly married, because, you know, you're young and you stay up too late back then. And I remember falling asleep. And back then you couldn't carry coffee into church. That was frowned upon. And that church didn't give you coffee so today we got a lot of we got a lot of pluses there, but but I remember as a kid, or a young man, newly married, and uh, we'd go to this church and we'd sit up in the balcony. Of the church it was a pretty big church, and uh, and I'd fall asleep. And my wife would nudge me, and finally I told her, "Look, just let me sleep. This sermon's so bad. If I fall asleep, just let me be, you know." And in my defense, that pastor was he was a he, he was a sleeper, so. <laughs> Oh, now that is a 2021 answer. 
It is so much more comfortable to watch this thing at home, on my couch, in my flip. I told my wife this morning, because when I, usually all day Friday, Saturday, in the summertime, I'm just in shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. I mean, that does, and I told her, I said, if we ever retire to Florida, I'm burning all my long pants. I'm just gonna wear shorts 24 seven. If I'm awake, I'm in shorts, that's it. That's all I'm gonna. So the idea of just sitting there in my shorts and t-shirts and flip-flop, watching church like I did during the early days of the pandemic, that is kind of nice, you know? The couch. Ellie thinks I'd need better PJs. Don't, don't judge my PJs. Come on. You're not zooming. They can't see you. That's right. That's right. I turned the camera off on Zoom. Well, this is, you know, uh, I, this is one of those things for us to even recognize. We, we laugh at it, and it's okay to laugh at this stuff, is that, that it is an ancient problem, that there was an enthusiasm in the early church in Acts 2. People got saved, and they were immediately going to homes. And as far as we can tell, that lasted about a month. No, I'm totally kidding. We have no idea how long it lasted. We really don't. What we do know is that there were no church buildings for at least a generation. Part of it was the Roman Empire didn't quite know what to do with Christians. Initially, they were just like, hey, a new religion, great, good for you. And then Christians were like, yes, but we don't acknowledge any other religions. And that's what got in trouble in the, with the Romans. Romans didn't care if you added a new god to the pantheon, totally fine. Long as Caesar and the Roman gods were ahead of it, totally fine. Believe anything you wanted, the Romans didn't care. And then Christians start like expanding more, making more Christians through the testimony of other Christians and talking about Jesus. And then the Romans got very concerned because the Christians were like, well, we'll pray for Caesar, but we won't pray to Caesar. And that's an important distinction and the Romans didn't like it. So it became uncomfortable to be a Christian. By the time that the writer of Hebrews is writing, there's a host of reasons people don't gather. Some of it may have been legal threats, maybe. But actually, most of the people didn't face legal threats. So there were waves in the Roman Empire of persecution. But it wasn't constant, and it wasn't from day one. It, it happened in a rotating basis. It just depended on which Caesar was irritated at who at the moment. So gathering for worship, gathering together as the church, which is what it is, the gathering. I, I had one friend who told me, he loved nature, and I love nature. If, you, if, you, if we're friends on Facebook, feel free to friend me if you like, but if, if we're friends on Facebook, you know my wife and I love national parks. We just, for our 25th anniversary, just did a big tour of national parks in Utah and Colorado and in New Mexico. It's wonderful. And, uh, but one of my friends, he says, when I'm in the great outdoors, this is my church. And I told him, nope, can't be, because the church is the gathering. And unless you're out in the great outdoors with at least a half a dozen of your Christian friends, you ain't to church. You might be worshiping. That's legit. You might be honoring the Lord. That's true. You might be growing in your faith. Wonderful. Ain't the church, though. The church is when you gather with other believers. Now, in our day and age, and my friends online, we don't want to disparage because of the current crises that we're in or the situation we're in and where different people for different reasons can't gather. And that makes total sense. But that's a phase, a temporal phase. It doesn't last forever. Eventually, we move past it. And once we're at the point where we all are past it, now, 
this is convenient. So I'm not, again, knocking the technology that can keep us connected when we're traveling or when, when we really do get sick, can't get in, are infirmed, or the kids really do have a cold and we've got to stay with them. Then this is a wonderful medium. And sometimes, so, some people have developed a, a sense of gathering from a distance. And the church is still trying to wrestle with, what does that even mean? What's it mean to be the church? My parents, now my mother calls crossings her church. And uh, my dad keeps saying, well, we should probably get back to our church. And my mom's like, I don't know if I feel safe going back to church yet with COVID. I need to tell you, they go out to eat twice a day. So <laughs> I don't call them on it because I'm like, I don't blame her. I've been to her church and I've been to our church and I'd probably phone it in too. I like our church. I think we do it really well. So... So there's a variety of things that creep up into this that are complicated. Well, let's get back to Scripture. All right, so there's a few things because we're running. Wow, we're getting there. <laughs> Sorry. Get me started. Get me started, Dan, and I just can't quit. So what are you devoted to? When you think of that word, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What are the things in your life that make your heart race, that get you excited. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to credit you all the Lord in Scripture because we're in Sunday school right now, and that's what everyone will answer verbally. So let's go to answer three and four, okay? Is that fair? Does that make sense? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everybody in the room the assumption that the first thing you'd say is what excites me is my relationship with the Lord and the opportunity to read Scripture. What's three and four? What, what are you devoted to? What gets you excited? Grandkids. Great-grandkids. Gr grandkids and great-grandkids. I bet a lot of hands would go up in the room over that. Yeah. It's what excites me is when I talk to another woman and we see her life. Mm. That's, that's just exhilarating. Just seeing another woman come to life. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Winning souls. Winning souls. Okay. Very. And now, now uh, the answers don't have to be spiritual. We're not going to judge you. I mean it. I really, I do mean it. At least I'm not. Some others might, but. Mine was spiritual. Like, like oh, yes. No, and that, that, that's. Someone else. Yes, come alive spiritually. Mine's not spiritual. Mine's vacation. Vacation. All right. Yeah. You start, one, do you plan your vacation while you're on vacation? Yes. I've heard that's a good trick. Otherwise, sometimes that last day of de vacation is so depressing. Yeah, totally understand. My wife and I, as we are at national parks, we're like, the next trip, we'll go to... Old muscle cars. Old muscle cars, yes, yes. Any show of hands in the room. It'll, I, I'm just curious if any woman in the room is like, I love a good old muscle car. Anybody? There's a couple legs right on. Good deal. Hey, that's awesome. It's a modern world. What else? What else gets you excited? You're, you might go, I'm devoted to this. I want to... Learn of this or music. Music, yeah. What kind of music? Awesome. Rap, probably rap. It's. I know you, Katie. I know it's Katie Kimbrough, and she said gangster rap. <laughs> She's shaking her head. She didn't say that at all. I'm just giving you a hard time. Again, I know Katie pretty well. That's why I'm ribbing her. Being with family. Being with family. Oh yeah. Well, the, the reason I ask this question 
is when you're, when you're practicing your own devotional habits, your own spiritual habits, and you're trying to capture what the scripture's getting at, one of the things you can do is take a concept and, and ask like a question like that. It says here they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which would be today we would consider that probably the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the stories of Christ, probably the Beatitudes. That's why every couple of years we do a sermon series on the blessed are the poor in spirit and so on because that's part of Jesus' core teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. There's a few chapters in Matthew, and probably the reason that that's recorded so in-depth is that that's probably core to Jesus' teaching. Probably if you were on the campfire for any length of time, he probably came back to that. That's probably why they had that memorized so beautifully. So they were devoted to, to the apostles' teaching. They'd get back to the house, and you know, over some flatbread and hummus, <laughs> They would, they would discuss, you know, when, when John was talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, I could really relate on this. They, they probably function like a modern small group or even like a Sunday school class. Well, what do you think he meant by this? I, now, I heard this, but I missed a part because someone, there were some, there were some sheep that were, you know, brain or whatever they sheep do, buying. And, uh, and so I couldn't hear. So uh, what was that part he said? And they filled in the gaps. Well, when you're looking at a story like this, it's so easy to just read past just very quickly and not try to get into the room with them and to ask, what does it mean to be devoted? What am I? And then to ask that question, what am I devoted to? Now, in this environment, like I, I, I said, you know, in this environment, we'd all say God and scripture and doing the Lord's work and all that. And I think that's, I, I believe it is true for a room like this, that that does excite us. But, but what's the thing that we'd get up early for week after week, you know? What is the thing that uh, we can't wait till the magazine comes in the mail because we read it cover to cover? What, what, is, the, what is it that I, I watch on TV that that I, I love to discover a new series of home improvement or murder mystery or romance. What, what am I devoted to? Chosen. And to ask, to ask myself, what am I devoted to helps me get in that story and to, and to feel my heart racing like their heart was racing. They couldn't wait to knock off work, head up to the Temple Mount and to, and to learn a new lesson in their growing faith. And it, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, there's a, a term there is koinonia. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard someone mention that word. If you've been around the church and Christian music for any length of time, you remember when there was a jazz, a light jazz group called koinonia. Anyone remember that one? And they were like, if you like jazz, you'll like koinonia. They're better than Miles Davis. They were no such thing, but they meant well. They meant well, and they were pretty good, but it was the idea of fellowship. Now, we think of fellowship as like potluck, but actually, this room, and I've, I've observed you guys for years now, there's a lot of pockets of fellowship in this room. The stories pick off where they pick up where they last left off. Some of you know more about each other's lives than your kids know about your lives. That's fellowship. There's a warmth, a camaraderie. When someone's missing at the table, either temporarily or permanently, there's sadness, there's grief. That's fellowship. 
And so when those people fellowshiped together, it wasn't like, oh, what's his name again? It was, it was in depth. And you could see now, now when you think about it that way, here's an excited group of people and they have a close-knit community. Don't you want to be part of that? Doesn't that, doesn't that look appealing? Now you kind of understand why the church grew in those early days. Yeah, the message was clear and it gave hope, especially in a hopeless world. But if there was a great message of hope in a hopeless world and the people were nasty, would you want to be part of that? No. But if the people were warm and welcoming and inviting and you had this great message of hope, I bet you're joining that family, aren't you? I mean, most of us come from some mildly dysfunctional home. None of us come from a perfect home. But to join a spiritual community is optional. You know, the family of origin, some of us moved miles away to get away from them, right? I had no show of hands. But some of you did. You made other excuses. But it, or the family of origin was a place of hurt and pain. And then you came into a new family, the family of God. And it, was a, it wasn't perfect, but boy, it was good or is good. And so you see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. There, there's nothing quite like a meal together. And there's two ways of reading this, and they're both right. One is they'd have a potluck, and part of the potluck would be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And they're both right. Some people read into this the Lord's Supper, and some people read potluck. And they both are happening here from uh, as far as we can tell if we piece together the whole of the New Testament. But there's something intimate and warm about breaking bread together. And, and you sit around and have a conversation. It can be awkward. You sit around and jam food in your mouth. It's extra awkward and wonderful at the same time. Because there's nothing like getting to know someone and seeing how they eat. All right? <laughs> Trying out their specialty dishes. Things you didn't even know you liked. Friends of ours in our small group brought over Brussels sprouts with bacon at some fellowship thing we did. Now, I'd never had a, a Brussels sprout in my life, and they looked like mini cabbages, which to me looked disgusting. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, they did put bacon on it, and bacon is kind of the <laughs> gift from God to make everything taste better. So I'll give it a try, and I would have eaten that entire pan, not just because of the bacon. I mean, it was so good. But, but that you, you, in the process of fellowshipping, there's a story of how this dish even came about and where they got it from. And there's a warmth there. There's a development of relationship there. And it happens in our day today in a Pyrex dish. And in their day, it was probably a woven basket. Oh, your, your bread tastes delicious. Oh, yeah. Well, I add this. A little garlic. <laughs> makes everything better. Just don't kiss afterwards. And it said they, they held things. Now, this is what's really quite neat. Is that It says everyone was filled with awe. And the word there is fear, but it is this reverent awe. It, it's not just like, wow, that's neat. It, it's that, and we've probably all had it in this room and online, that moment in our lives where we think, I'm on holy ground. This is, maybe I should take my shoes off here. This is holy ground. Some of you have slipped off your shoes because you go, ah, this is holy ground. 
Jill Briscoe, she spoke here a few years ago. She's kind of been a mentor to my wife and to me. And uh, she shared a, a story of her daughter, Judy, when Judy was just a little girl. And Judy was in a foul mood as a little girl, like little kids can sometimes be, and was acting real sassy. And... Uh, and, and so Jill was in the kitchen and, her, and they had had some sort of spiritual conversation that didn't go well. And the kid goes, the, the, Judy says, do I have to give up my doll to become a Christian? And Jill wasn't in a mood. So she just said, yes. <laughs> I know. It sounds like parental spiritual malpractice, right? And Jill says, Jill shared this story publicly years ago. She said, Judy came back a few minutes later and said, all right, mom. I'll give up the doll. And Jill shares this story. She says, I slipped off my shoes in that kitchen because I knew I was on holy ground. And that is reverent awe. It's not terror of the Lord. But if we really had the reverent awe, I think we'd function differently, knowing we're always in his presence. It's a shame we can't feel the reverent awe all the time, right? If only we could. It would transform the way we relate to people our vocabulary, our priorities. And you can kind of see in that early church, that's why we we're always trying to get back there. You could kind of feel it. There's an enthusiasm and excitement. It was a mountaintop experience. But how great would it be, and then maybe this is what eternity is, is that it's not a mountaintop. It's just scaling to new heights, that the enthusiasm doesn't die down because there's always something grand to discover about the one who created it all. And so I hope that this has done something for you, piqued an in interest. And so as we close, I hope that your takeaway here is just a, you look back and you think, I want to I be part of that, but I can't get into a time machine. So how can I make the thing I'm part of today feel a little bit like that? How can the, the table I sit at, the small group I'm part of, this class, how can I feel a little bit of that today? Some of you would say, I do. I'm enjoying it now. And that's awesome. And some, it's a first love that has faded. And you just need to reclaim it and say, God, give me that enthusiasm that I once had. So I'm going to pray for us. And uh, if you want to chat afterwards, feel free to come up and find me. And then we'll be on to worship. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be here in your presence. But really... You're, we're always in your presence. We're, we're never not in your presence. It's just we mark it out in a unique way here. And so we're, we're grateful that we can do that. We confess to you that we don't come to you because we're worthy, but you make us worthy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that we're part of something very ancient, millennia, more than two millennia years past, a community of faith striving to honor you, Lord. We're the called out ones, called in the name of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good to be with you all. Have a great morning.